This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Immediacy, and the poet is Rod Cockrum, and Rod joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Rod. Hello, Steve. How are you doing today? Let me read a couple of things you've written just to set the tone of this book of poetry. You say this, Immediacy is my expressive responses to nature, places, found in lost loves, art, time, passion, longing, depression, emotion, and random thought. Some poems... <laughs> Express my internal thoughts, others my reactions to personal experiences, others are pure wordplay and imagination. Well, that sounds like it covers just about everything. Yeah, the entire world. <laughs> the entire world. So what prompted you to, well, I guess you just love to write, I guess. That's the bottom line here, isn't it? Yeah, the main motivating factor for uh, writing a book, chat book, poems is a creative process and free expression you know sometimes you live through a segment of your life and you feel that nothing has been articulated from it so you feel the need to express that so that part of your life doesn't become empty or void and uh you know i was a songwriter before or i still am but uh, i moved into an apartment in town and I just didn't want to bother the neighbors with constant uh, piano and guitar playing. So I just you know, started putting in poem form without an instrument and uh, kept accumulating. I thought I'd publish. Well, this kind of communications, this uh, poetic literature takes you to the center of your emotions in a way you can't do it any other way. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think songs can do it, you know. And uh, uh, songs do it, and I consider poems songs without music. And that's how I was taught in the literature classes, and that's how I came to think about it after I wrote quite a few. Now, you say that your more controversial aspect of your book of poetry is it's a it's kind of got a heavy tone. Yeah, I uh, when I got everything ready to go and read it published and everything. I read it over and read it over. First time uh, as a whole book, and it was so serious. And I'm not that serious a person. So uh, I don't know why. It just came out that way. Because, uh, you know, we think about things and how they affect us. And it's, we have to do that. We have to uh, con contemplate life sometimes instead of just react. But you did try to add some humor to it. Yeah, I added a couple, uh, Morning Nixon and To Be a Tree, I think, are a little lighter. And uh, they're not so serious. It's not dark. I don't think it's really a dark book. It's just serious reading, a lot of it. Well, some people may think you're just self-absorbed. Yeah, I know. But that's part of that's part of expressing yourself, right? You express yourself from your experiences and what you're feeling. It certainly is, yeah. What writing isn't personal, you know? Uh, I did kind of, 
break away from that and uh, got a little objective and uh, kept the diversity of subjects uh, in uh, a poem about Van Gogh and a poem about a Holocaust survivor that I met. And uh, I think uh, I came out of myself there. I think, I forgot, I think about half of the poems are pretty internal and the other half are more objective. So you're not dragged down into me all the time, you know, on every page, <laughs> you know. And uh, I think I kept a good diversity of subjects and relatability to the reader. And you have some focus on nature. Yes. I uh, think people are very disconnected with nature these days. And I grew up in town, you know, and uh, when, uh, when I bought my first house, it was out in the country, and you don't know how much you're missing. People don't know how much you're missing, you know, to be that close to nature every day and its value. You know, we think of it as a commodity mostly. We don't think of it as part of our interactions with our own lives and our own selves. And uh, I think I forgot the title of the poem. I think there's two or three poems that I tried to uh, emphasize the disconnection of nature with modern people you know well as you put it it's uh, really the country is misplaced in its priorities uh, the industrial revolution really changed everything and changed the and way people felt about life that sure it has I think it's even changed uh, the idea of representative government itself you know I'm, I'm pretty apolitical but uh I think a lot of things went down the tube at the turn of the 20th century as far as individual values go. And we haven't gotten back yet. I really think that. Why does uh, Vincent Van Gogh, why is he such a... Uh, uh, you find him very interesting and, and his, uh, his style, uh, is it the kind of thing that really motivates you? Yes. He has since I was kindergarten, you know, we showed a, uh, our, our principal, I guess, was a Van Gogh fan, and she had a, uh, one of his paintings hanging, hanging in the hall, and we'd run by that, run by that in the hall to gym class every day, and it just, it was starry, starry night, and it just blew my mind. So I tried to describe in poetic terms his uniqueness and his influence on art and society, you know, that we recognize now. Because he lived in a very pivotal time when people were starting to view the physical world differently. Uh, they were meaning that life is structured from many small pieces, cells, and that human life in the physical world is not separated from one larger enigma. And his he expressed that in his artistic styling, you know, with his, as did all the Impressionists. Light is substance that influences. Because before the Impressionists, paintings were very flat. You know, they were uh, they didn't have much expression. They had some color. He just uh, the Impressionists laid it on thick, and they said, "These little pieces make up the bigger piece." And uh, 
that's why I tried to express in a poem about him uh, and his uniqueness. Do you feel that you have to have some kind of an experience before you can write or uh, uh, something that just gets you thinking no. a certain way? I mean, how do you write? No, well, you know, sometimes, Steve, I remember once I, I, I lived about a mile from the grocery store and it was a beautiful spring day and I got in there, uh, I got in there, I, I needed groceries, so I just thought I'd walk. And it was so beautiful, I'd forgotten how warm it was because I was very busy studying. And uh, that two-mile walk just motivated me and the nature and uh, this huge willow tree. Oh, that's all it took. And I got three, two or three poems out of that because it it uh, just got my juices flowing. <laughs> you know, not <laughs> cliche, but uh, it doesn't take much sometimes. Sometimes it does. You know, you lose a job, you lose a lover, and uh, you get a, uh, uh, a delayed reaction from that. You know, you don't, uh, it doesn't take much sometimes. Sometimes it takes nothing. Sometimes I just sit down and I bring one right out of the page. And sometimes I, uh, you know, try to ruminate on my own experiences and my own thoughts. But, uh, but no, it doesn't take certain specific event. Well, as we mentioned before, uh, much of your poetry is serious. Sometimes it can feel heavy, but there's some therapeutic aspect of that, and you would recommend it to anyone, I'll bet. Oh, oh, sure. Yeah, I recommend poetry to anyone. That uh, I just love to have the effect it has on me when I read you know, other poems. Because a poet can cover a number of subjects in a chat book, in his own book. And uh, the poems can be as engaging and as far-reaching as, you know, a longer novel or a bunch of short stories or uh, any other form of literature. And these kinds of writings that are, well, they're, they're concentrated. Wouldn't you say they're concentrated not only with the choice of words that are very pointed to the heart of a matter, but they also... Uh, take a person to uh, another place, uh, another feeling, uh, kind of, uh, uh, you can be on a journey. Yeah, yes. Uh, that's about uh, what entertainment's about, you know. Either it takes you inside your feelings or it takes you out to another place, you know, sometimes. And, uh, you know, you get to enjoy it that way. <laughs> And I guess the title of this collection of poems, Immediacy, really has uh, important meaning to you. In fact, there's a yeah. poem. There's a poem that is titled Immediacy. Yeah, I even uh, had a title poem like the. Uh, I think it's an old-fashioned way to do it. You have your own collection. You have a title poem. So I thought I'd do that. And uh, immediacy is just a way of. Uh, Reminding people who live in the moment, you know, and then it's not a philosophy, really. It's uh, what happens to us. You know, we can be, be feeling really good, and we can be feeling really bad, but we're always drawn back to the moment, whether we will it or not, or if it just happens. We always have to come back to the present, you know, to uh, affect life, to 
get over the bad parts and to enjoy the good parts, we're always brought back somehow to ourself, and we have to manage from there. It's uh, the immediate moment. We live in all the time. We have to keep that in mind. How do you feel the American culture today treats art? Treats art? Well, uh, it's over-commercialized, I, bet, uh, I think. But uh, I see some awfully, awfully good stuff, you know. Yeah, it just makes me feel so inferior, or not inferior, inferior, yes, inferior. See what's out there, and it, it motivates me to try to keep up. Uh, uh, but that's the real artsy stuff, you know, that you see in the art magazines, and uh, and that's what's good. That's what's really good. People are opening up, but they're hard to find. Those people are hard to find because there's so much over-commercialization of everything we do, especially television, you know. Um, but it's still out there, and it's still very high quality. When do you know that you're product, your poetry is uh, ready for the public? Yeah, well, when you can't work on it anymore, it's always with writing its structure. I can finish a poem and it will read and sound very good, but then rereading it reveals its flaws and uh, areas to improve on, and the work and the struggling begin to make the poem stand out, to make it sing. So the reader is not only engaged, and uh, but their passions are moved, their feelings, their imagination is stimulated or moved. Because a poem just can't sit there on the page and sound good. Uh, each word and line and stanza needs purpose and power to give the piece a solidness that won't leave the reader wanting. And that's you know when I when I see a poem's gotten there, then I'm done. Or if I see a poem as uh, getting there, then I know I'm almost done, or I, I might not have to keep poking at it, you know? Well, the title of the book is Immediacy. It's a book of poetry by Rod Cockrum. Rod, tell us how to get your book. Uh, you can go to Author House's website, authorhouse.com, and you can go to the websites of Barnes & Noble, Borders, and Amazon, too. And it's on their websites. Well, as you say, well-written poetry engages the reader to a shared emotion, thought, place, imagination, or experience. So congratulations, Rod. Well, thank you very much, Steve. It was great talking with you. Great to have you with us. That was Rod Cockrum. He is the poet of his book, his book of poetry titled Immediacy. Rod, how many poems are in your book? In immediacy, I have 32 poems, and it ends up 82 pages. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions helping you identify the real problems and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence and, more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. 
For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Was sad, right? Cause he had a death kill mommy and dad, right? But that ain't the case, nope. it wasn't his fate, no. Nope. The walls never struggled to communicate. Ha. Y'all wave your hands, look who's on. It's the code of man Keith, and he's number one. It's that Keith Wine Show on Toginet.com, Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central. Every week, that Keith Wine Show will have guests that share their experiences, expertise, opinions, and personal lives with us to hopefully help us better understand others. The topics and guests will come from the American Sign Language community. For more on Keith Wine, and the show, go to his website, KeithWan.com. Listen with an open mind and willingness to learn and help with the cultural bridge. Number number one, Keith's number one. Everybody clap because the Coda Man's on. Number number one, Keith's number one. Everybody clap because the Coda Man's on. Don't miss that Keith Wan Show. Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Distant Memories. The NFL's best ever players of the 60s and 70s. And the author, Danny Jones. And Danny joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Danny. Hi, how are you? I'm going to read a few things you've written to set the stage for everyone of what we're going to talk about. Obviously, we're going to talk about the NFL's best-ever players of the 60s and 70s, and this is what you say. My book is about the great players of the past who made football the number one sport in the world. They were legends who played the game and gave football all they had. Many of these stars played injured and hurt. They made sacrifices and played the game the way it's meant to be played. My book is about the players who should be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame but are not. My book is about the most exciting players to ever play football. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. Danny, tell us about your football career. Now, you were very close to playing in the NFL yourself. Well, I like to think I was close to it. Yeah, I had a very good and successful career. I caught 302 passes for 5,519 yards and 66 touchdowns. And that's a lot of, a lot of touchdowns for only 300 catches. Now, you, you played in what league? I played in the Columbus Amateur Football League, and I played semi-pro football in Columbus here, too. And you tried out with the Cleveland Browns back then? Yes, in 1977 I did. Obviously, you didn't make the cut. No, I didn't. I'm sure it was very disappointing. Yes, it was very disappointing for me. You are close friends, Lance Renzel, right? Yes, Lance Renzel. Now, he was a receiver, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He was I remember him. I re- boy, he was an unbelievable receiver, and he helped you with setting up the interviews with uh, these many of these players? He sure did. He gave me some phone numbers and addresses of them. He says this, Distant Memories is much more than a book about pro football. It's about a dying breed of heroes from a disappearing era. A vibrant, funny, and telling story of a period of time that seems even further away than it actually is. Lance means what he says. 
He sure does. He's a very intelligent individual, extremely well-educated. And caught a lot of footballs. Yes, he did. He caught 268 passes during his career. Wow. Well, good for him. Well, as you look at these 26 men featured in this book, which you say uh, all have one thing in common, they were great at what they did, right? Yes. And that was back at a time when, how do we describe it? How do you describe that time back in the 60s and 70s in the NFL? Help us understand. I think it was a time, an era, where it was just much more laid back, more comfortable. And um, I think it was the best time in pro football history. It was a different era. So these men were pioneers? Yes, most of them were pioneers. Uh, You have pioneers, you know, back in the 50s and stuff. But you have a lot of them in the 60s so as and even you, 70s. So as you look at this list, it has a lot of names that I recognize, and I'm sure most people would. There are some that I don't recognize. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about a few of them. Uh, who would you like to talk about? I'd like to talk about Lance Rensel. Okay, let's start with Lance. Go ahead. Lance was one of the best receivers in the history of the NFL. He was the great all-around receiver. As far as catching passes, running pass routes, speed, quickness, he had it all. Now, who, did, a, who did he play for? He played for the, actually, he played for the Minnesota Vikings in 1965 and 1966. And then he was traded to the Dallas Cowboys in 1967 and played for them through 1970. And then he was traded to the Los Angeles Rams in 1971. He became pretty famous with the Cowboys and then, of course, did incredible things with the Rams. Yes, he did. With the Cowboys, he had almost uh, three consecutive 1,000-yard seasons. He had 996 yards in 67. He had 1,009 yards in 1968. And in 1969, he had 960 yards and led the NFL on touchdown catches with 12. Let's take another player. Let me see. As I look down the list, Roman Gabriel. He's quarterback, right? Yes, he was. He was one of the NFL's all-time great quarterbacks and is a personal friend of mine, too. Now, how did you meet Roman Gabriel? Well, it's a funny story. Uh, When my book came out, I sent him a copy of my book. And next thing I know, I get an email from Roman Gabriel inviting me to come to his Roman Gabriel Celebrity Golf Classic in 2006 and I so I went down there in April of 2006 and I've been to five of his golf classic tournaments and we became the best the best of friends well good for you now here's some of the names Dick Anderson Tommy Casanova Gary Collins Greg Cook Carl Eller Roman Gabriel now here's one that I Remember who was just the fastest man in the world at the time, and he, I think he played for the Cowboys, didn't he? Bob Hayes. Yes, Bullet Bob Hayes. Bullet Bob Hayes. Tell us about Bob. Bob Hayes is a tremendous athlete. He revolutionized the passing game of pro football with his 9.1 speed and changed the way defenses played forever. Because of his speed, no one could run with him, and they had to do something to contain him, so what they did was came up with a zone defense. So he was the reason why the the, the zone defense was created? Yes, he was the reason why. (laughs) Because no one could run with him. Well, you could almost catch him. Uh, You ran, what, how how fast did you run the 100? 
I mean, 109.5, Okay. Well, that's. I guess he's still in front of you, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he sure was. And he was still in front of me in Dallas, too, because when I went down there to Dallas to visit him in 1980, my wife and I were walking with Bob Hayes. He was showing us downtown uh, Dallas, and Bob Hayes challenged me to a race on the spot. <laughs> so we raced across the street. It's about 50 yards. And believe it or not, I ran the best race of my life. Because he beat me by six inches. Oh, well, good for but you. I don't take any pride in that because I was 27 years old and in my prime of playing football, and Bob Hayes was 37 years old at the time. And uh, I still think he was playing around with me. <laughs> but uh, it was a fun race, and it was a, one of the greatest thrills of my life to race him. Well, you also talk about Harold Jackson, Roy Jefferson, Homer Jones, and then there's Floyd Little. I went to school with Floyd Little at Syracuse, and let's see, he played. I don't. He played for the Browns. No, Floyd Little played for the Denver Broncos. That's right, the Broncos. That's yeah. right. Who was the quarterback at that time? Let's see. They had um, uh, Marlon Briscoe was a, a quarterback, and uh, Steve Tinsey was okay. for a little while. Right. Some names you probably haven't heard of. Yeah, those aren't the, the famous ones we think of Denver. We don't think of them, do we? Yeah, no, we don't. We think of John Elway. Yes, Mr. <laughs> Elway. That was before Mr. Elway. That would have been quite a combination. Little and Elway, wouldn't oh, it? Oh, that would have been a heck of a combination. And then there's Jim Marshall and, of course, a favorite of many, many who was on TV for a long time, Monday night NFL football, Don Meredith. Dandy Don Meredith, yes. Tell us about Dandy Don. Dandy Don was a great quarterback. Uh, he was a fun-loving, free spirit with an easygoing demeanor. And um, Don was a nice guy and a fine gentleman. And it was just horrible the way he left the game. Um, you know, he was abused so much by Cowboy fans and being booed and stuff that uh, he just quit the game in the prime of his career. Yeah, and that... he was a great, great quarterback and a great team leader. Yeah, fans love you when everything is going great, but when it's not, they turn fast, don't they? They sure do turn back on you. They really do. In fact, a good moment of that would be, an instant would be when in 1970, the first year of Monday Night Football, uh, the Cowboys were getting beat 38 to nothing by the St. Louis Cardinals, and Howard Cassell, the other commentator, said, Don, do you hear? They want you back, and the fans and the fan." I'm sorry, the fans in the seats were chanting, we want Meredith, we want Meredith, we want Meredith. And Don said he wouldn't go back for a million dollars. And that, was, and that like, was a lot of money back then. That's right. <laughs> of course, it like still is. Said. Yeah, it sure is. Any way yeah, you look at it. That's right. Yeah. Well, then, then there's Earl um, Morrill or Morrell. I can't remember. Morrill. Yeah, Morrill. Now, he yeah. was quarterback, wasn't he? Yes, he was a quarterback for four or five different teams. And then, of course... Mercury Morris. Now, there's a speedster. A real speedster. Mercury Morris is one of the um, most outstanding football players of all time. He was a brilliant kick returner and one of the best ever runners. Uh, he ran a 100-yard dash in 9-5. And uh, he may have the best combination of moves and cutting ability of any runner in NFL history. He was that good. And then there's Art Powell, and of course we've talked about Lance Renzel, yeah. and Jack or Jake Scott, Jack Snow. Now I know the name Jack Snow, and I can't place 
seems like he played for the Rams. Yes, he did, number 84. Ah, so he was a lineman. No, Jack Snow was a... Oh, he was a receiver. Yes, a receiver. Back then, it was either a tight end, I guess mostly tight ends, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, most of they had a lot of tight ends back in those days. But yeah. he was a wide receiver. He, he was a wide receiver, okay. okay. Yeah, wide receiver. And then there's Dwayne Thomas, Gene Washington, Warren Wells, Travis Williams. I recognize Otis Taylor. Otis Taylor, one of the great receivers in pro football history. And then Jack Youngblood, that's a familiar name, and yeah. I can't place what he did. Uh, seems like he was defense. Was he defense? Yes, he was a defensive end yeah. and played for the Los Angeles Rams. Right. He was uh, like he, nobody liked him back then. Well, why would that be? Well, he was just tough, wasn't he? Oh, he was tough all around. Right. All around. He was tough. He was a competitor. Yeah. Uh, he never quit, and he strived on perfection. Why don't you think, well, first of all, let me back up here. Sure. Now, out of this 26, who's in the Hall of Fame out of these 26? Okay, right now, they just got uh, Bob Hayes in 2009. Uh, they got Carl Eller in 2004 and Floyd Little in 2010. Out of those 26, and there's some just some uh, NFL stars here. How yeah. come they're not in the Hall of Fame? What's your view of that? Well, I tell you, my view is very, I guess you think it's controversial. It's not really controversial. I think it's a fact um, because my view of that is that they need to change the system in the Hall of Fame. And uh, I think the problem is it's because of the politics of the Hall of Fame selectors. They seem more interested in players who just retired and have waited the minimum of five years on the ballot for selection. Uh, they are more interested in selecting players of today in the first year of eligibility and forget about the players from the 60s and 70s. And I just think the Hall of Fame committee needs to have a complete overhaul in the way they conduct business. I think it's time for a new selection process with new ideas and no prejudice involved. And to simply get rid of the people in the Hall of Fame selection committee of today, uh, they do have a senior committee for older players but only one or two can be selected a year. And the only reason they have a senior committee is because they've been overlooked by the regular Hall of Fame committee. And, I mean, the Hall of Fame committee tries to do the best job they can, but they need to change the selection process to get some of these older players in there. Otherwise, they'll never get in there. Well, it's a surprise to me that Don Meredith is not in the NFL Hall of Fame. Yes, it's surprised me too really is he was a great quarterback i think the reason he's not in there is because you know they're going to say he lost those two games to green bay in 1966 1967 but don Merritt did not lose those games for him the cowboys lost those games as a team but don Merritt doesn't he gets the blame for it you know all quarterbacks get too much credit when they win and too much blame when they lose as they say and uh you know, they've given him a bad reputation by saying that he lost some of those games, and he didn't. He should be in the Hall of Fame. And he just died a couple months ago. Well, you've got three books. Yeah. You've got this one, Distant Memories, the NFL's Best Ever Players of the 60s and 70s. And your second book, what is that titled? It's called More Distant Memories. More Distant Memories. Yeah. Pro football's best ever players of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and you've, you're coming out with a third one. Yes, my third book will be coming out any moment now. I'm, 
I'm expecting the galleries to come back to me this week. And my third book is titled Lost Treasures from the Golden Era of America's Game and Pro Football's Forgotten Heroes and Legends of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Well, Danny, tell us how to get your most recent book, uh, This Distant Memories, the NFL's Best Ever Players of the 60s and 70s. Tell us how to get your book. It's very simple. Uh, you can get my book from Arthur House, who's my publisher, and they got a phone number, which is toll-free. It's 1-888-280-7715, and you can get it from Barnes & Noble bookstores and uh, Amazon. Well, thank you, Danny. Thanks for being with us on Author Talk. You're welcome. That was... Thanks again, Danny, for being... Well, let me do that again. I just cracked... That's okay. Thanks again, Danny, for being with us on Author Talk. You're very welcome, Steve. I had a good time, and thank you very much for your time. Danny Jones, author of his book, Distant Memories, the NFL's Best Ever Players of the 60s and 70s. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. People think I've made it. I'm popular. I seem happy all the time. I have great clothes and I'm involved in everything. But I have questions, doubts, and fears, just like every other teenager. That's why I'm glad for Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. Join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. The choices we have to make that can alter the course of our lives. Life is too much pressure if we try to go it alone. I tune in to Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell every week to get reminded that I'm not alone. Nicole O'Dell is an expert on what happens in the lives of teenagers. Join her as she deals with topics like peer pressure, purity, drugs, alcohol, and many other things that might come up along the way. She writes books and speaks to people all over the place, but she says her favorite moments are when she can pull up a chair and chat with teens about what's important to us. For more information on Nicole and her books, go to NicoleO'Dell.com. Then join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on Toginet.com. Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, A Great Silence in the Land. And the author is K.W. Swain, and Kelsey joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Kelsey. Hello, Steve. Well, great to have you with us, and we're going to have an in-depth discussion about God's commandments uh, and his view of our lives today and what's going on in the world. But first of all, let me read what you've written about your book. 
In this immoral day, the Bible is disabled as a guide to our feet, and the Holy Spirit is no longer acknowledged as a light on our path. So agrees this new book by K.W. Swain, entitled A Great Silence in the Lamb. The main topics are the disavowal of the scriptures and the silencing of the word and the spirit, a time of great wickedness, and the attack upon the foundation of our country. Well, you're really focused in on these latter days, aren't you? Yes, I am. And they are very much latter days. Why did you choose to take this theme, Kelsey? I was watching TV a lot. I had some uh, surgeries and different things that kept me in. And uh, therefore, I was watching a lot of news. I actually got angry when they were uh, so um, concerned about global warming, man-made global warming, that is, I thought to myself, why don't you read the Bible? Actually, I yelled it at the TV. I said, why don't you read the Bible? The answers are there in the Bible. I decided that nobody's reading the Bible because I hadn't heard the the, the scripture that I was talking about is uh, Genesis um, 8, chapter 8, uh, 21, 22. And I had not heard anyone on the religious channels, my acquaintances, uh, the, the uh, anchors on the news. No one mentioned that verse in the Bible. And I got to thinking about that, and I said, well, you know, nobody believes in God. They're not reading God's Word. It's because even if they read that verse it would mean nothing to them. So I thought, well, there's so many errors in this, you know, going about feeding our children, our children never getting the right aspect of anything. And uh, I'll just write a book about, uh, it's going to be called Standing for the Truth. I changed that in, in a little way into it. And I started writing it, and I guess I suppose it would be a book of lists. But then it directed me in a way that I really hadn't intended to go. Now you talk about the real myths. What are the real myths? Uh, First, let's talk about the false myths. Because I had known uh, some people in my own family. Uh, I heard on the radio much, many times, that the Bible is, uh, is a myth. We can take or leave, or we can, um, you know, find its meaning to suit ourselves and so forth. And uh, that's the stories like Jonah and uh, the uh, and Noah's flood, and so forth. And um, I said, but but let's see the real myths. Only because I I didn't just didn't believe in global in. Um, Oh, the Big Bang Theory and the um, evolution. And so many of my friends who I thought were so so strong in the faith uh, believe, you know, they believed they were believing science. They said, oh, yes, they've already proved a lot of this and blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I took it upon myself to... Read uh, first the, the biblical uh, creation, uh, 
Of course, I had read a lot of my of my Bible uh, anyway, but nevertheless, I went back to the creation. And there it just seemed, it just popped out at me, Steve. I was just amazed at how anybody way back then, you know, the... Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, well, not the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, um, um, first, the appearance of the, there were, of the Bible back, oh, like in 200 BC, um, had, uh, um, the Old Testament practically in, intact, and, uh, and, well, not intact, there was script, there were scraps scraps of paper that were found way back then and but genesis was found intact the way i understand it now i may be wrong on that but those words came from something found in that area the 200 bc time and uh how could anybody i thought how could anybody have written that when these things are just now discovered. And um, my book is about the plainest that I can get to telling you what I'm talking about. It is, it is definitely, I include it as uh, the, what I have found, what I found as a science lesson. It all comes about, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, speaking in my book to a group of young people. And um, I, I had a, then I had a vocabulary list of words I found in the creation, uh, biblical creation. I had a vocabulary list of words that had just been found out and proven uh, in recent years. Well, you know, back in uh, uh, Newton's time and, and uh, Copernicus and uh, Galileo. And they they discovered these things and named these things that are already written in the Bible. So that's what I'm talking about. Now, why the if you'll pardon the expression? <laughs> <laughs> why the King James version? Why is that so important? King James is the Bible of the Holy Spirit. It uh, was the um, the old men of old, the whole, what the uh, Bible calls holy men of old, wrote as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, King James is not our, our uh, it's not the writer of this Bible. He just merely was the sponsor. And he was able, we were able to, um, we have to thank God that he was king, because he overrode the objections to a new translation, and he, uh, but he had to uh, oversee it, and um, so he appointed. And that during that time, and this is God's will, that he brought up instead of the poor and lowly men of old, he brought up very learned men. To uh, the, the the most learned men who could uh, translate, and they um, uh, they consulted every translation that had ever been, every edition, and so forth. And these men put the, the this Bible together, translated it into English, um, and and it took three years 
and um, it went on uh, to be uh, later not retranslated, but cleaned up. Uh, the the time of the language of Queen Elizabeth was uh, made a little more modern, but nothing was uh, added or subtracted because the Holy Spirit is, if you believe that he's um, uh, uh, omnipresent, then he's always watched over his book. Whereas I think the revisions that are done in more modern times, I think they were started right in the 1800s, they are simply... I don't think that they're not they're not the Holy Spirit's work to me. Well, somebody might say, well, this group of men that, that's putting it in modern language we can understand uh, must have had the Holy Spirit with them. Well, yeah, but there's a hundred revisions listed on the Internet that I counted. So was he there with every change and every aspect, uh, every removal? every, you know, uh, that these people wanted to make. And the Bible is uh, the Holy Bible. The Bible of the of the Holy Spirit is um, not... Natural minds can't understand it all. And they are able to understand it. They are spiritually discerned. So with prayer, if you, you know you can understand a lot. There's, I'll come, I come across the scripture all the time that makes no sense to me. I have no idea what it is, but it seems important. But nevertheless, um, this is the Bible that we have. And there's nothing wrong with the thee and thou language. It's easily understood. And when you start trying to make things understood to us today, you leave off some of the paradoxes some of the uh, some of the true meaning of that scripture. Do you understand? Am I making that yes, clear? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so that's why the King James version. Let's talk uh, because King James was the sponsor, and uh, he never even got an a an, uh, um, oh, what do you call it authorization from Parliament to right. have it in his name. Well, you talk about uh, America sitting on. Shifting sands, as uh, as you put it, and you say that our country is facing a great earthquake, symbolically worse than ever seen since the creation. And also, you talk about a one-world government. You really uh, see mm-hmm. our country going into a black hole. I see the uh, our country on shaky sand because it has turned into. Um, a generic country, whereas once God gave it to us, and in His name and in His uh, of, by His word, it was established, and it was a, it's a place of uh, of freedom. Uh, but now it's turned that freedom into license. We um, the people do what they want to do and claim it's okay. Uh, as far as the sin, the sin sins are are non. You know, ap- well, I'll say the people are apathetic about sin, and um, many uh, go to church and take their Bibles to Bible study, 
while they are condoning sin, maybe in their own household. That's uh, Now, people are going to get pretty upset with me saying that. My daughter, if she was here, she'd say, how do you know? Well, I know because the sins that we <laughs> that we um, condone, you know. So uh, anybody knows what I'm talking about, the... Um, um, the the um, ruination of marriage, you know, as it's supposed to be, and um, uh, the respect given to homosexuality and uh, abortion, that's how I know. And those are things to bring our country down. Now then, the earthquake. Let me give you a little note, a little uh, account of that on this uh, business in um, Egypt. Um, the um, this man cried out, Egypt is in an earthquake. There is an earthquake here. And um, Shepard Smith says, hey, uh, we'll try to get some more details about the earthquake. Earthquake? And it threw him off his schedule. <laughs> I know, but we didn't hear any more about a regular natural earthquake. I thought it was just, that's why I say, you know, my book is timely. And it is a symbolic earthquake. Things are happening that never happened before in this country, but more so because it's global. And uh, that's very significant, that when, when, when globally we are... In these earthquakes, we see it happening in every country in the Middle East. You see how all the other countries in Europe and so forth have already gone down at least once, but some of them have changed their ways and are getting better. But um, um, America is is bound for this earthquake. And as you see, the the uh, one thing about it is Congress and the president cannot rule together. Uh, one world government? Oh, most assuredly. The beast has to come. The beast has to be involved, and the beast to me is the one world government, whichever one it takes, if it's the United Nations, or if it is um, um, China, or if it is uh, Islam, uh, communism, whatever form it takes, it will not be pretty. The title of the book, A Great Silence in the Land, and the author is K.W. Swain. Kelsey, tell us how to get your book. Okay, my website is KelseySwain.com. <laughs> I wanted it to be very, very easy and easy to remember. Uh, the thing is that uh, my name is spelled a little differently, so K-E-L-S-A-Y will get you to my website. K-E-L-S-E-Y, I don't know if that person, there is a person, Kelsey Swain, on the Internet, but but, uh, that's kind of important to me. And uh, you can get it there and go to the order page, and it goes straight to Author House. And um, that's just uh, how you do it, simple as can be. And I hope you will. Kelsey, thanks for being on Author Talk. Thank you for having me. A Great Silence in the Land, and the author is K.W. Swain.